Hi, and welcome to Green Deal, Big Deal, the podcast where we discuss Europe's green future. My name is Eva Ivashuk. And I'm Nick Evans. We're pleased to join you from the offices of Ecologic Institute in Berlin. In this podcast series, we explore the ins and outs of the European Green Deal, the EU's flagship environmental initiative. And today I'm joined by a guest co-host, my colleague Nick Evans. Thanks, Eva. It's great to be here. So, Nick, you specialize in the topic of climate governance, and climate and environmental governance is what we would like to talk about today. So, before we dive in, I wanted to ask you, what does governance mean, actually? Well, when it was first announced, I often heard the European Green Deal referred to as a project. And when it comes to the topic of governance, I believe this is actually a really helpful way to think about it. Because if the European Green Deal is a project, then governance is the project management. And of course, the first step in project management is to define your objective. So where do we want to go? All right. So in the case of the European Green Deal, this end goal that we have would be for Europe to become the first climate neutral continent by the middle of the century. Yep, exactly. But the concept of governance also covers how you decide on that goal or vision, how you revise it when and if the need arises, and also what form it comes in. So is it set in a law or is it maybe more loosely defined in a governmental strategy or other document? Right. So in a recent episode on EU taxonomy, we talked about how different actors are involved in a legislative process. And also in previous episodes, we mentioned different strategies that are being put forward to outline the steps towards goals, such as, for example, transformation of food systems. Yeah. And this gets right at the second component of governance. Once you know where you want to go, you have to go about deciding how to get there. And this is not only which policies to pursue, but also how they're decided, who's involved with the seat at the table, who's responsible for implementing them once they're enacted. And finally, how do you check to make sure that you're staying on track and what happens when you find out that you're not? Okay, so in essence, once we have those strategy documents, the governance framework can give us a recipe on how do we go from the text to the real world changes. For example, how do we go from having a farm to fork strategy to having sustainable meals served in all public canteens in Europe? Yep, exactly. The organization management of policies to deliver real world changes, such as those that are right at the center of the European Green Deal. Well, I am excited to explore this topic today in conversation with our two expert guests. We have with us Claire Dupont, who is an associate professor of European and International Governance at the University of Ghent. Claire is also a member of Luxembourg's Climate Policy Observatory and a chair of the Scientific Committee of the European Environment Agency. We also have with us Sharon Turner. Sharon is an established member of the European Climate and Environmental Law and Governance Community. And Sharon has held a range of senior positions in a variety of sectors, including her roles as um, professor of law at Queen's University in Belfast, as well as executive director of the European Climate Foundation. Sharon and Claire, welcome to the podcast. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Very nice to be here. Sharon, Nick compared governance to project management, and I wanted to ask if you would agree with this framing of the term. Or how else would you explain governance, especially in the context of the European Green Deal? I think Nick's project management metaphor is a very strong one. And I think it captures the totality of all the different activities 
that governance covers. And maybe another way to think about it is to think about governance as being like the conductor in an orchestra. The journey to net zero is going to require thousands of different policy interventions at all sorts of different times right across the economy. And an orchestra is made up of many, many different instruments, all of whom have to play at the right time, volume. They all have to play the same tune as well. And the conductor makes sure that all of the different instruments are playing together. They're playing the same song. They're coming in at the right sequence. And governance plays that role in climate policy. Governance makes sure that all the policies are playing the net zero tune, that they're coming in at the right time, that they're at the right level of ambition, and that nobody goes off to sing a different tune. When you're listening to music, you're hearing the music, but you're not necessarily seeing the conductor. But without the conductor, you just hear a cacophony of sound. And I think that is the great power of governance. Governance is that invisible force in the huge cacophony of climate policy activity, but it's making sure that all of those policy interventions are adding up to the net zero objective. I really like that metaphor, not only for governance, but also for the problem, right? Because for anyone who's seen an orchestra, I mean, there's so many moving parts and it seems like it'd be such a challenge to get all those parts working in harmony. And Claire, the European Green Deal is just that. It's an attempt to finally tackle some of the biggest socio-environmental issues we face. But we hear over and over again in the news from scientists and activists that we need more action. It's not happening fast enough. Historically, why do you think it has been so difficult to govern these problems? Oh, well, that's a very good question. I mean, governing socio-environmental problems usually means change, right? It means change at a massive scale across a whole bunch of sectors, across the whole of society, really. Change of any sort is anyway challenging and difficult. But when the problem is as complex as climate change, as biodiversity loss, these are problems that cross boundaries, they affect everyone. These are problems that have their roots and their causes also in the underlying structure of our economies and our way of life, certainly at least in the industrialized and developed parts of the world. And the change implied in resolving these problems is nothing less than a total transformation of our societies as we have become used to them. So, of course, the task of governing that change is also inherently complex. If you think also about it, you know, the further problem is that if socio-environmental problems are not adequately addressed in a timely manner, then they tend to become even more complex to govern because the scale, scope and the urgency of the problem intensifies. It's a very challenging task and it's not surprising that we have historically struggled doing this. So given all this complexity, how does the European Green Deal try to tackle these challenges or does it do anything differently? I think there are three main aspects of the European Green Deal that are particularly interesting in terms of how it changes from previous ways of governance and governing in the EU. The first is that it makes explicit the integrated nature of governing sustainability. So the European Green Deal advances the idea that we need real policy coordination and coherence, real integrated policymaking across different projects, sectors, policymaking proposals, and multiple levels of governance. This idea of policy integration is something that has been discussed in the EU for decades, but has hardly really been implemented. So the European Green Deal is really moving forward on this quite dramatically, and I think that's very different. 
Second, I think it connects the challenge of transitioning or transforming our societies to a climate neutral society. It connects this challenge to social justice. The EU has tended to avoid policy discussions or discourses or proposals on issues of social justice in the past. Of course, because it doesn't always have the competence to deal with this issue. But now the recognition that this transition needs to be socially just means that the EU is required to deal with issues of social justice, very different from the past. And then I think a third difference or even an innovation that we can see in the European Green Deal is that it really sets a medium and even long term vision of the pathway of what economic development must look like. So. We know with the European Green Deal that economic development has to be climate neutral and it has to be socially just. The European Commission calls this the new growth strategy, but at the same time, it opens up discussions about whether this growth means economic growth in the way we've thought about it for the past decades. Does it really mean the same historical pursuit of growth as in accumulation of wealth and growth in GDP and so on. The fact that this may be, as an idea, even if very indirectly acknowledged by the European Commission, shows that there is a shift in understanding among policymakers. Claire, you have touched upon the vast amount of different policies, strategies and plans that are involved in the European Green Deal. And there are two pieces that seem to stand out in particular. We have the European climate law that was adopted in summer 21, and there is the nature restoration law that is being debated at the moment. And I wanted to ask, why are those two considered the flagship legislative efforts of the European Green Deal? Well, the European climate law is very important for setting out the real binding objectives for 2030 and 2050. We can discuss a bit more about that, but I think I'm particularly excited about the nature restoration law myself. I think the nature restoration law is really a fantastic example of how these three innovative aspects of the European Green Deal I just mentioned, its integration, its social aspects, and its medium long-term development pathway, these are all brought together in this proposal. It's very exciting. So the nature restoration law is not a biodiversity policy. It's not a climate policy. It's not a nature conservation policy. It's not a social policy but it's all of these combined. It really shows the recognition that nature is the fundamental building block upon which we have built our society and our economy. It acknowledges that we cannot expect to prosper as a civilization without caring for and restoring nature. We cannot expect to tackle climate change without nature. We cannot have social well-being without nature. And the proposal sets out binding targets for nature restoration. I think it's really exciting to see that compared to the past, for years, you know, we've been talking in biodiversity policy that our goal is to halt biodiversity loss, to stop losing biodiversity. And we keep failing to meet that target. But here we have a new ambition. It's not just about stopping biodiversity loss. It's about restoring ecosystems. It's an addition, a positive story. So as you explain, the law really touches on some fundamental issues. And I want to ask, why do you think climate and biodiversity haven't been really put into such a framework law before? Oh, there could be many reasons for that. The very institutional setup of the European Union makes it difficult to propose integrated laws because the European Commission makes policy proposals based on the competence that it can work on. But this is 
also building on the political momentum of the time. And when it comes to climate change and biodiversity, climate change has gained in political importance far more and far sooner than biodiversity has. And I think it's only in the last, even just a couple of years, that we're really, in a political level, seeing the beginnings of the same sort of commitment to tackling biodiversity that we saw a decade ago in tackling climate change. Indeed, I think that it's probably the first year when the UN Biodiversity Summit was being covered in most mainstream media. So that was great to see. Yeah, exactly. And Sharon, in the previous podcast episodes, we discussed some strategies, for instance, the farm to fork strategy and the circular economy strategy. And I wanted to ask you, why are some of the areas of the European Green Deal covered by laws, as just explained, and others by other types of files, for example, strategies? And what is the key difference between the different types of files? Oh, well, I think that um, on one level, the answer is relatively straightforward because Europe will propose binding action where they know there is a high degree of agreement between the member states and that they are willing to be bound by common standards. So, for example, the Fit for 55 process was basically a set of a very, very dense set of proposals to revise a huge framework of legislation that has been in place for a long time that member states themselves are familiar with it, they've agreed it, they've revised it more than once, and it's all about implementing the EU's 2030 targets, essentially. But as you've just mentioned there, the Green Deal program or project also has a series of other strategies. And sometimes the Commission will use non-binding strategies to set out a vision for very complex change. Claire has just described how complex and how ambitious the Commission's proposals are in terms of the nature restoration law. But that began its life, as I understand it, in the biodiversity strategy. So setting out a new vision for a whole new area of change, but including the anticipation of legislative or binding change. But then you have initiatives like the the methane strategy or the circular economy strategy, where there is much greater divergence of opinion between countries about whether they actually want binding regulation. And the farming context is very, very sensitive area for countries to accept regulation in. And it may be that that remains as a non-binding strategy for a period of time. But the non-binding step is valuable nevertheless because it provides the Commission with a mandate to suggest how countries should coordinate around common standards, common approaches. It provides a framework for countries to define a common set of problems. And I think that the history of lawmaking in Europe is defined by this ebbing and flowing by often voyaging into new areas with non-binding strategies, but ultimately evolving towards binding action after a certain period of discussion. So we've spoken a bit about the nature restoration law. I'd like to just shift gears and focus for a moment on the European climate law. It's the first of these flagship laws to be adopted, and it's supposed to help us reach climate neutrality by 2050. But Claire, also at the beginning of the podcast, we discussed that governance describes how we organize and manage policymaking in order to help solve problems. What tools and approaches are included in the climate law that help us manage the transition? The European climate law is particularly interesting. 
it's a regulation, right? So it's a binding regulation of the European Union. And it doesn't really say much. It's one of the shortest pieces of EU law on climate or energy or environment that you may find. But what it does is it sets out targets as binding on the European Union. And that's important because the 2030 and the 2050 targets in the past, also the 2020 targets that we had, those were previously politically agreed targets that then had to be implemented through separate pieces of law. And here we have a single regulation that says we have this goal for 2030 and we are binding ourselves to achieve it. We have this goal for 2050 and we bind ourselves to achieve it. And we also plan to set a target for 2040. And also, for example, we're setting up a European Scientific Advisory Board to help make sure that we're on track and help us advise us to make sure we're on track to achieve these goals. But the fact that it sets out this legally binding plan to 2050 is also already quite innovative in the EU context. And also it helps make sure that we don't have a risk of backtracking, you know, as political changes occur, this law remains in place. It's quite difficult to dismantle EU policies and laws once they're in place. This is like almost a kind of a legal guarantee that we're really serious about achieving this goal. So it seems that the law really is an attempt to consolidate the target setting process and then also make this like very clear, like we mean business. Sharon, considering the scale of the challenge we're up against, do you think that the European climate law is fit for purpose from a governance perspective? Is there anything missing? Very definitely, yes. Um, I think that, I mean, Claire is completely correct. I mean, I would agree with Claire's description of the significance of the legislation in that it's binding the union to achieve this transformational target. And it creates a governance framework that requires the European institutions to use their powers to make sure that the union delivers it. What is missing really is provision about national responsibility and national ownership of the net zero objective. And if you read through the climate law, it says almost nothing about the national dimension to actually getting to net zero. If we look across European member states and we look at the countries who are serious about getting to net zero, they themselves have all recognized that this transition is much more than just a technical transformation. This is a societal transformation. And it requires deep national ownership of that project. It requires, for example, each country to commit to the net zero objective. It also requires the country to set in place a governance framework that enables citizens to participate in conversations around getting the choices that have to be made to get to that objective and all sorts of institutional bodies like advisory bodies to speak truth to power, to bring the expert voice into the conversation so that all the stakeholders in that country really have independent advice about what the real policy options are. About 13 European countries at this point have taken the unilateral action. They've actually gone ahead of the EU and they've put in place their own national framework climate laws committing themselves to net zero targets, putting in place all of those arrangements, 
at home, if you like, so that they're taking into their own political and economic culture the responsibility to get to net zero. But what is missing in the European climate law is that, yes, about half of the European member states have taken this step, but the other half have not. And we know that the significance really of the EU committing to net zero is that if the union is going to get to net zero, every member state is going to have to contribute. This is not an objective that can just be achieved by some member states working together. The need for national ownership of this European objective is crucial. And I think that is fundamentally the missing element. And I think that, is it in 2024, the European climate law requires the European Commission to report to the European institutions and Europe at large to give an assessment of, is the climate law fit for purpose? And I think at that moment, Europe really should be looking across the union and looking at this huge wave of climate governance innovation that is crossing across Europe, quite independent of the EU itself. And I think that in 2024, Europe should be saying to itself, okay, we've put our net zero objective in place. We've put our governance framework, not entirely perfect, but we've put a strong governance framework in place to make sure that the European institutions are all playing ball. But now let's see What are the lessons that we can learn from the European countries and that we start to build up a much stronger and more consistent standard of governance happening in Brussels and in all of the 27 member states? Claire, many of the national governments are establishing scientific advisory bodies and indeed the European Union has also established a European scientific advisory board on climate change. Why do the European Union and those governments think that they need support of such institutions to have this steady inflow of scientific advice for the governance process? I think this is one of those examples of innovation that Sharon is talking about. We're still kind of in the experimental mode here. But I think the common idea behind them is that they're supposed to serve to provide independent, scientifically grounded advice to governments on how they are progressing. So how are they doing? It's kind of a monitoring role. How are they doing in terms of achieving their targets? What should they focus on? What could they do better? Where should they think about moving in the next stages? And I think it's also part of this creation of a system of pressure to ensure we meet the targets that we've set. It's about how do you achieve them in a timely manner, in a socially just manner, making sure that you really achieve the transformation that's necessary. For a lot of them, it's also about a lot of work happening in the next 10 years, where much of the basis of the transformation has to be laid down. The important part of it is also that they are independent. And that also provides an extra layer of legitimacy to these advisory bodies that goes beyond the party politics that we see playing out sometimes in governance choices. All right. So we have this evolving framework to ensure that scientific advice can be provided to those policy processes. But as Claire has mentioned before, the European Green Deal calls for really a vast and complex social transformation. And to achieve that, we will need to get everyone on board with this plan. And Sharon, I wanted to ask you, how does the European Green Deal attempt to 
involve different voices and different groups in the debate? Well, I think that it tries to do it in different ways, but I think it's really at a very early stage in thinking about that. I think that the Green Deal is focused more on policy ambition and policy scope and to some extent new institutions like the European Advisory Board. But I think they're really at a much earlier stage in thinking about how you engage different voices. But having said that, they have set up the European Climate Pact, which is a kind of a platform in order to engage NGOs and civil society and stakeholders across the union to talk to the European institutions about the choices that have to be made as they go forward. But I think what is really missing in all of this at this stage in the Green Deal story is that the Green Deal fails to recognize the problem I referred to earlier, which is that the standard of national climate governance across Europe at the moment is very, very inconsistent. Some countries have gone ahead of the union and they have created processes and procedures that make sure that their citizens are really heard in the process of choice making. And for example, several countries have set up citizens' assemblies They have, as Claire has just referred to, they have very powerful advisory bodies so the scientific voice is heard very loudly at the right time in decision-making processes. But that is by no means the case right across Europe. And indeed, several European countries don't have a strong track record of citizens' engagement. So while the Green Deal is now entering into an implementation phase, some citizens, for example, will have the opportunity to be heard at domestic level as the countries start to implement all of the legislation that's being adopted at the moment. But many citizens won't be. And that is a real issue, I think, that really does need to be addressed going forward. And I think also particular voices like the labor movement, trade unions don't have a particular seat at the table in Green Deal discussions and decision-making. I think that national parliaments are mentioned in some of the supporting legislation around plan making, but they don't have a definite locus. And I think they are an important voice because it's hugely important, not just that the government of the day is involved, but that opposition parties are also involved because ultimately all political parties have to understand that even if they're in power or not, they will ultimately be responsible for making this journey. And they need to understand the choices, understand the options, and to see themselves as being responsible for making sure that their country gets there. And one could even say that cultural voices are not being addressed in the Green Deal. The whole process of how you help society to actually embrace change, artistic groups, cultural groups, groups around mental health, I mean, I think that they may be more unusual demographics or voices for the climate world to think about. But this is a profound question about democracy, about how you help societies to deal with the most significant change that humanity has ever had to embrace. And that requires a very wide range of voices and organizations to have a seat at the decision-making table and at the right time. So there are many missing voices in an absolute sense, but I think Ursula von der Leyen's State of the Union Energy Union speech, it acknowledged this need for a more participative transition. And maybe it's a sign that 
the Commission is thinking along these terms and that it will come in due course. If there's anything that the last three years have taught us is that you really can't plan for everything. And we're still dealing with the fallout of the worst days of an ongoing pandemic and the war in Ukraine has caused shockwaves in European society and economy. So Claire, I wanted to ask you, do you think that the European Green Deal can help Europe weather huge external shocks? And can it do this without losing track of its ultimate goal of climate neutrality? So that's a really interesting question. It's one that I've been examining in a few research projects. Historically, in the EU, we've gone through a few crises, and these are our most recent ones, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Historically, however, we've seen with the financial and economic crisis of the ends of the 2000s and the Eurozone crisis, for example, and even what's called the migration crisis now, these were moments where climate, environment policies and objectives were kind of sidelined. So we saw that in the past, when there have been other external shocks or crises, we have in the EU lost track of our climate policy goals and vision. But what's really interesting is that if you examine the European Union's response to the COVID-19 pandemic and crisis, and if you examine the Europeans' response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the energy crisis that is bound up with that, we see that the European Commission has drawn upon the European Green Deal as its go-to policy framework. Now, that doesn't mean that the responses in both cases have been perfect, coherent measures that are absolutely in line with the final 2050 vision. But in both cases, I think we can see that the European Commission and the European institutions have built their response upon the European Green Deal and in some cases have accelerated decision-making that was planned in the European Green Deal. So, for example, we saw in the response to COVID-19, a greater proportion of the European budget is now assigned to climate objectives and climate policies than was previously expected. Um, And in the response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the energy crisis, we see a massive acceleration in the rollout of solar energy and a whole strategy and plan to make that happen. So there is this reliance on the framework that exists and building upon it and accelerating some elements of it that are in line with our climate goal for 2050. And there are, of course, some other elements that are slightly more contradictory, such as that we take even dirtier liquefied natural gas from farther away. But overall, we see that the European Green Deal is highly durable and resilient as a governance framework. Claire, Sharon, thank you for this insightful discussion. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, in light of everything that we discussed today, Are you optimistic that we are well-equipped to manage this grand project that is the European Green Deal? So I'm going to be difficult here. I don't think it's a matter of optimism or pessimism. I think it's just doing, right? I see that there is progress. I see that we're especially making progress on the energy transition. We have points to work on. But I think what's very exciting right now is that the EU and its institutions are learning how to leverage the full scope of their capacity in the governance framework. And that's, I think, new and interesting. And we're in an experimental mode. But the goal is set. 
And I think we all know we need to get there. That's just what we have to do now. I certainly feel a sense of optimism and a sense almost of pride that the EU has taken this incredibly courageous step in committing to net zero as a huge block. I think that Claire is completely correct to say that the union has done a tremendous job in staying true to the Green Deal mission, despite the enormity of the shocks that have buffeted this project almost from the moment it was announced. But I think that in terms of its resilience, we're still dealing with the same European cabinet that announced the Green Deal. Ursula von der Leyen announced this as her big project and her cabinet are still the people who are running the mission. I will reserve judgment until I see what the project is going to be for the next European Commission president. If the Green Deal mission survives into the next cabinet, then I will feel that the union is going to carry on the mission. And I would say at a very specific level, if the union shows willing to require member states to give access to climate justice before national courts, to civil society, to hold every country to account for delivering it, then I will really start to believe that in fact, we'll get there. Sharon, Claire, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, Nick, so a very interesting discussion, a lot to digest. What stands out for you from this conversation? I think the first thing that I noticed that struck me was when Claire spoke about this kind of longstanding back and forth between climate policy has really taken the, the forefront and biodiversity, nature conservation, habitat loss has kind of been not so much on the back burner, but certainly not in the spotlight. And that that paradigm may be shifting. I, I found that very interesting that she spoke to that, that specifically now with the nature restoration law, alongside the uh, European climate law as the two main kind of flagship efforts, that it has to be an integrated approach, that you can't have one without the other. Indeed. And uh, recently I heard this comparison that really stuck with me that said that in the short to medium term, not addressing climate change can make our lives very difficult almost unbearable, but in the long term, not addressing the biodiversity crisis can make human life on Earth actually unviable and feasible. Hmm. So it's absolutely crucial that the European Green Deal puts those two topics next to each other and tries to address them together at the same time. I think what I found very interesting is that Claire talked a little bit about the aspect of economic growth and indeed the European Commission has called the European Green Deal its new growth strategy. And I have seen it very differently until now because I had a feeling that the European Commission felt still the need to put this imperative of economic growth at the center of it and say, you know, this is how we're going to economically grow from now. But the given is that we need economic growth. Well, what she has pointed out is that Integrating this language in the European Green Deal might also be a first step to rethink what do we mean by growth? Is it the you know increase in GDP year on year? Or are we looking also at aspects of you know well-being and maybe bringing in this language of degrowth and limit to growth into a more mainstream debate? Yeah, I think it gets to 
what Sharon was talking about, how that's the ebb and flow of European policymaking, that baby steps and then full measures, that this is a, a step towards not just using green growth as a selling point, but actually rethinking the economy from the ground up. And of course, it's only a, a step in, the, in that direction, at least. Exactly. And that really stood out for me as well, this understanding that before we can make certain elements binding, because we need so many stakeholders in Europe to agree to make law binding, sometimes it might be better to put something forward to start building a debate and a common language around it. Mm -hmm. And that's very interesting. And then something else that Sharon talked about is about how important it is also to looking at the national level to involve national parliaments. Why? Because it's important to have the opposition mm -hmm. of the debate. Oh, yeah. Mm. So things we're trying to plan for are very long term. And we need to count with the fact that the national governments will change and those things need to withstand those political changes. We, we see that at the national level. Some of the work that we've done at Ecologic has been on national climate laws and those countries that seem to have kind of the more robust framework in place are those where the law was really decided by the broadest contingent in terms of the, the broadest political consensus. Yes. And I think the final thing I would say that stays with me from this conversation is what Sharon has mentioned about the need to continue revising our ambition. So one thing is to kind of stay on course of the targets that we have established for ourselves. And hopefully European Green Deal sets out a framework for that. But our awareness of the problem changes, the technological ability and reality changes. And we have seen in the last five, six years, an incredible increase of amount of climate ambition. Mm -hmm. Not a single European country had the climate neutrality goal six years ago, if I recall correctly. And now I believe majority do. So I hope that what we see in the next years is not only that we do stay with this plan, but we also see this plan continuously being improved and continuously being made more ambitious because as it stands today, sadly, it uh, does not get us where we need to be. I'm into that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's all for today. We hope that listening to today's episode provided you with an understanding of governance, why it's relevant, and what it means for the European Green Deal and Europe's transformation to a climate-neutral society. In the next month's episode, we'll talk about a classic winter topic, air quality, and how a recent European Green Deal proposal wants to ensure the air we breathe is clean. We would also like to remind you that we have launched our webinar series where our listeners have an opportunity to directly interact with the experts, ask their questions and share their views on the different aspects of the European Green Deal. You can learn more on our website, greendealbigdeal.eu. We also invite you to follow our Instagram channel at greendealbigdeal to be notified about upcoming webinars and podcast episodes. You can find other episodes of the Green Deal Big Deal podcast on all major podcast platforms and apps, including Spotify, Apple, Deezer, as well as on YouTube. Please subscribe to find all new episodes in your feed. This podcast is part of the European Environment Initiative, funded by the Federal Ministry for the Environment, Nature Conservation, Nuclear Safety, and Consumer Protection. The ministry supports this initiative on the basis of a decision adopted by the German Bundestag. The podcast is produced by Karl Lehmann, Eva Ivaschuk, and Aaron Best. Sound designed by Lena Ebli. 
graphic and web design by Jennifer Run. Special thanks to Nora Kugel, Camilla Bausch, and Michael Lawrence. <laughs>